You're listening to the Elim Church Northampton podcast. This message was recorded live as part of our regular Sunday service. We know that this is a great investment into your life. So tune in and give it a listen. For more information, visit elimnorthampton.com. Also our worship team and all those that serve in today, thank you so much. Please be seated. Well, it's a great privilege to introduce Pastor Mike. If Some of you may know uh, my son-in-law, uh, my daughter Becky, and uh, Mike surprised me. He said he's got a word for us today. So the first serve was awesome, so I know what's coming. I want to pray for you as the Word of God is delivered, that God will speak to your heart and for you online today, that God is going to speak to you where you are. Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, that it's living and active and sharp. And Lord, I pray for Pastor Mike as he comes to deliver your Word. Lord, that you'll just bring revelation to us. Lord, you bring freedom. And Father, you bring hope. So Father, we commit to you, Lord, our service today. And we just thank you for what you're going to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's walk past the mic as he comes. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to be back in Northampton, um, as Jason said. I uh, did my ministerial training here. Can I have that table, please, Jason? Is that okay? Come on, you're still getting paid. It's Sunday, although you're not preaching. Uh, so I did my ministerial training here. I was here for about eight years uh, before we moved to Luton. Now, Luton, when I say that word, people usually take a sharp intake of breath uh, because it doesn't have the best reputation. But God is moving in Luton. Uh, we lead such a great church, not because we're there, but because of the people. And um, when we're in Luton, we, we pray for God's blessing, but we always think of Northampton. And as you can tell by my beautiful accent, I'm actually from Birmingham, but I always think of Northampton as home. Uh, so it's lovely to be back. Are you ready to get into the Word today? Brilliant. We're going old school today, so if you've got a Bible, you can flip over or swipe to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. Now, one thing I find fascinating about the Bible, as Jason said, that, that verse there, Hebrews 4.12, the word is alive and active, sharp then to a two-edged sword cutting between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Is you can sit in the Bible for years and never, ever exhaust it. You'll never exhaust the word of God. Did you know that? And at the moment, there's about 122 LCFers, that's the name of my church, LCF, reading through the Bible in a year. And it's great because it shows me on the Bible app who was keeping up so I can judge my congregation. And if they're reading the Bible every day, it's absolutely fantastic. But it was just a couple of weeks ago, we've been working through Genesis. And in Genesis 30, I saw something that I've never seen before. And I've been reading the Bible uh, through in the year for about nine years. And I love it when God does that. By His Spirit, He just taught walks into something afresh. And it's that word I want to bring to you today. So if you've got your Bible open, we're going to look at verses 22 to 24. But as ever, let me give you a bit of a background story and a bit of a context. Very, very difficult to jump straight into a narrative and not understand what's happening around it. I want to firstly introduce you to a man called Jacob. A man called Jacob. I'll show you a picture of him. Uh, this is an AI-generated picture, but it's done it really well because it makes Jacob look stressed. And I'll, I'll show you why Jacob's stressed. 
Jacob is an eligible, eligible bachelor and he's looking for a girlfriend or indeed a wife. And one day as he's walking through a field, he spots this beautiful lady called Rachel. And it's like on those dating shows, when their eyes connected, instantly they just fell in love with each other. It was a God-ordained moment. Now, of course, culturally, Jacob had to go and speak to Rachel's dad, Laban. And Laban, the best way I can describe him or how I think of him reading about his antics is a bit like Dal Boy from Only Fools and Horses. I can see him in a trench coat and a cigar and a flat cap. Because Jacob goes to him and he's quivering wreck. He's like, Laban, I would love to marry your daughter. We, we are just so connected, we're soulmates. And after being sick for a moment, Laban looks at him and says, well, what are you asking me? And Jacob says, I would love to have her hand in marriage. Is that okay? And he says, yes, but. And this is a little bit like what happened when I asked Jason for Becky's hand. He says, <laughs> You can marry her, but you have to work for me for seven years. And I did eight, so I'm all right. So you have to work for me for seven years. But of course, Rachel was so besotted with Jacob and Jacob so besotted in Rachel, the days just flew. And then they get to the wedding day and this is where it all goes wrong, okay? This is meant to be the culminative moment where everything just goes right. And I don't know who Jacob's best man was, but he has some explaining to do because the only way I can think about what happened next was he had a very, very heavy stag night and wasn't 100% on his wedding day. And he gets through his wedding day and he wakes up the morning after and he's feeling satisfied and accomplished and just feeling like his whole life is ahead of him, Jacob, when he turns to look at the beautiful Rachel, except it's not Rachel. Now, I don't know how many Jaeger bombs have been involved in this time between wedding day and wedding morning, but the person he thought he married wasn't that person. And where the Bible describes Rachel as beautiful, all it says about Leah is that she had weak eyes. So something had happened where Jacob has totally got the wrong end of the stick and of course he's fuming and he runs out of his wedding day hotel, finds Laban who is killing himself laughing and he said, I'm sorry Jacob but culturally our custom is that we marry the eldest daughter first and this is culturally to the time, uh, I don't recommend this today but Laban says you can also marry Rachel, okay, you can have two wives but I need you to work for me for another seven years. Thankfully, Jason only has one daughter, so I didn't fall into that trap, okay? And Jacob does it because he loves Rachel. And now when people say the Bible is boring and they struggle to read their Bible, honestly, what happens next is better than any Netflix drama you will ever imagine. Better than Prime, better than Disney+. Plus. There is so much that happens in the Bible and Jacob begins his life with his two wives who are also sisters, who also don't get along. And Jacob goes to bed with Rachel, he goes to bed with Leah. And of course at the time, the, the thing to do was to have sons to carry on the family name, but Rachel doesn't have sons. Leah, however, is exceptionally fertile because she has Reuben and then Simeon and then Levi and then Judah. I don't think Jacob works anymore, certainly not in the field because there's a lot of children happening. And Rachel is pulling her hair out and Leah is smug. And it gets to the point where Rachel in chapter 30, verse one, looks at Jacob, says, Jacob, if you do not give me a child, I am gonna die. Can you imagine the pressure Jacob is under? Hence why he probably looks a little bit uncomfortable here. Okay, this picture is only 13 years old. Look how old he looks, okay? 
So it was all just going wrong. But then Rachel has this idea, well, if God isn't going to let me get pregnant, I'm going to take my servant Billa and I'm going to give Billa to Jacob and then Billa can have children and those children will be mine. So Jacob grudgingly takes Billa. And then we have Dan and Naphtali. So now there's six boys. But Rachel still isn't fulfilled because the children aren't really hers. And now Leah gets the hump because Rachel's done this and said, well, if you can give your servant to Jacob, I'm going to give my servant to Jacob. And he introdu- she introduces Zilpah. And Zilpah has two more sons called Gad and Asher. Can you see how messy this is getting? And then Leah's thinking, well, this was my servant, but I'm sure I've got a couple more children in me. So Leah goes to bed with Jacob and has Issachar and Zebulun. And God is sitting on his throne saying, guys, please stop fighting. There's so much testosterone. And just to give a blessing, God gives Leah a daughter called Dinah. Okay, just a bit of estrogen to break up all that testosterone. And this is where we now find our verses in Genesis 30, 22 to 24. Look at this. It says, oh, Please can the parent guard you. He doesn't say that in Genesis, okay? He says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named her son Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, as I said, this is an exceptionally complex story with all sorts of hormones and attitudes going on. And it's very, very easy to read it in the text, verse by verse. You can read it in two minutes. We don't know how long it was from Rachel getting married to Jacob to Joseph being born. It could have been months, probably years, when you think there's nine other children before that, 10 including Dinah, years and years. And Rachel that whole time was weeping. She was crying. She was fasting. She was praying to God, please, Lord. But nothing came. And we so often miss this in Scripture, just going verse to verse. That gap of years is what I want to focus on this morning. The title of my message, as you would have seen at the beginning, is Own the Moment. So if you take notes, write that down. Own the Moment. You see, We often talk about God's promises and we're a culture addicted to destination and to goals. We always want to get somewhere, but we don't talk often about the process. It's a little bit like yesterday when I was driving up to Northampton. There was about 10 or 15 minutes where I completely blanked out. I think Becky was talking to me and I was just on another planet. And I suddenly came to at the wheel of the car thinking, how on earth have I not crashed? Has anyone ever had that? You just blank. Because I'm so focused on where I'm going... I forget the process. But I want to tell you this, church. Process is often the moments that we discover life's most profound lessons. Life's most profound lessons come not in destination or even in promise. It's in process. Process is where formation happens. Formation into the likeness and into the image of Jesus. It more often than not happens in the moment in between, what I would call a liminal space, going from what was into what is next. It's that moment in the middle where we learn so much. So before we talk about owning the moment, I want to talk about owning the process. Owning the process. You see, reading this story, the thing I saw that I'd never seen before is that I think Rachel let the process own her. And there's a distinction. What do I mean by that? Well, Rachel was so desperate for the promise, she introduced her servant to try and bend God's arm to get her will. 
And I don't believe it was God's will at that time. However, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for His good. But when we try and own the process, it inevitably gets messy. And that's when Leah got her back up and Zilpah was introduced. And there was catfighting and infighting and the boys were just a nightmare. It just got messy because Rachel had tried to own the process. Process, church, isn't your enemy, it's your ally. It's not a bad thing to be in a waiting or in between or liminal season. Those moments are forming us, even though they're uncomfortable, it is strengthening us for what God has for us. Look at this from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 3 to 4. He says, we can rejoice, we can be glad, we can be happy when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us. This is the thing about the Kingdom of God, it's topsy-turvy. The things the world says, it's often the opposite. Let's embrace suffering and problems and trials and waiting, why? Because they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So what does that look like? What's it look like learning to own the process? What does it do? See, it's very easy to say that God strengthens us in process and he, he makes us more formed into his likeness. But when we're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel good. It feels difficult and, and it feels like there's resistance. Well, this is what process does. Firstly, I think process proves priorities. And I'm a proper penty preacher, so all these points are P's, okay? Process proves priorities. What do I mean by that? Well, I think when we're really hankering after something, more often than not, the things we pray for aren't the things we need, they're the things we want. They're not the things we need, they're the things we want. And that sounds really simple, but it has a big effect on our lives. You see, when we're praying for something or seeking after something or wrestling with something, it's the process that refines our priorities. The, the requests we go to God that are fluffy and bulked out, it's only when we keep having to show up and push for them, our priorities are really revealed. And oftentimes the things we want don't really matter two or three weeks later or even months. Have you noticed that? We pray for the new iPhone 14 and then the 15 comes out. We want it, we don't need it. I said in the first service, I was 15, my first girlfriend. I prayed to God that I would marry that girl. And I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer, my word. <laughs> Nothing against her, but I've done far better, okay? And so often the things that are all consuming today won't matter tomorrow or next week or next month. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? Matthew 6, 25. Do not worry about tomorrow. Don't worry. Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. See, the things that are so consuming now, actually in process, they're refined to the things that really matter. Second, process promotes persistence. Process promotes persistence. This is intricately linked to the first point. When we really need something or we're desperate for something, we persist with it. We see this again, Jesus in, I think it's Luke 18, one to six. You know, the parable of the persistent widow. Keep, if you really want it from God, keep going. What persistence does is create discipline. Our prayer lives are discipline. Our reading the word every day is a discipline. When we are really after something that we want from God, we need to persist with it. 
And if it doesn't matter, you'll give up after a week or two or three. This is what process does. It promotes persistence. And lastly, process produces patience and trust. And I think this is huge for today. We are the most educated, information-saturated culture to have ever lived on the planet of the earth. We know everything. And if we don't, we just go to Google. And if Google doesn't know, we go to ChatGPT. You can do everything now at the click of the button. The most obscure facts, the most obscure details, the most obscure things you need to know are available at the click of a button, which is good. The problem is it gives us a mentality, either consciously or unconsciously, that we're, uh, we're invincible, that we know everything, we can do everything. We have come to lean on our own understanding. Why? Because the world tells us we're invincible. We can have everything we want when we want. And it's not until a doctor's diagnosis comes that your mentality shifts. And this is why prayer with Jesus is so important that you're investing in the good times because it will get you through the hard ones. Process produces patience and trust. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So often in 21st century Northampton and Luton and indeed Western culture, we lean on our own understanding and then we we almost use God as a mentor. We check our own motives to Him and we say, God, my will, not your will. And we've come to believe we are God-like. All this information, all this stuff available so readily. But process produces patience and trust. It's only often when you're hurting or broken or suffering, and I'm not just talking physically, I'm talking spiritually, emotionally, we realise we're not invincible at all. And it all ends and starts, of course, with God. You see, in a productivity-driven culture, destination is all that matters. Getting somewhere. But you'll find in the kingdom of God, it's the journey that's important. It's the journey where lessons are learnt. It's the journey when we are formed more into the likeness of Jesus. It is the journey when we learn grace and patience and trust and persistence. Instead, however, when we neglect the process, and indeed like Rachel, we try and bend the process to our own will, we become masters of missing the moment. And again, reading this text, never seen this before, read this verse tens of times, loads and loads of times, preached on this message before, but I've never seen this. Come with me again to Genesis 30, 22. This miracle Rachel has been praying for, probably for 10, 15 years, is suddenly in her arms. When uh, my first son was born, Judah, it was such a weird thing as a man. Obviously, Becky had been carrying Judah for nine months. But one moment I wasn't a dad and the next moment I've got this weird hot lump that was pooing and sicking and had all sorts of muck over his face in my arms. It's the most strange feeling. Things a bit easier for Becky because she'd nurtured Judah in her womb and he'd grown there, but suddenly I've got this thing. And I actually had a moment, Linda was in there as well, thank goodness. I nearly passed out, there was so much blood. Um, well, I looked at Linda and it was almost like an anticlimax. Have you ever had that? Like where you're so gassed up for something. Uh, and it sounds awful, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but you, you see these posts of, you know, when I first saw my child, all I felt was intense love. First thing I thought is, what on earth do I do with this? What, what do I do? 
I said in the first service, one of my favourite times of year is Christmas, like November 6th, bonfire night 5th, November 6th, my tree is up. And if you don't do that, you need prayer, okay? We should embrace the coming of our Lord and Saviour. November 6th, my tree is up. I milk it for all it's worth. But I've come to find I enjoy the season and the thought and the sentiment of Christmas more than Christmas Day itself. You ever had that? It's almost like an anti-climax. It's just loads, really messy. Everyone's stressed about the dinner. Uh, kids are shouting, screaming, breaking their toys that we've just spent a fortune on. Uh, rubbish everywhere. Thankfully, this year we did it at Jason and Linda's, so we opened the presents, threw the rubbish and legged it back to Luton. <laughs> but it's like anticlimactic, and I almost think this is what happened with Rachel. She'd been praying for so long. She'd had this image of what her child was going to be and suddenly she's holding it. But I think she misses the moment. Why do I think that? Let's read. This is Rachel looking uh, down at her new son, surrounded, I'm sure, by Jacob, Leah, the servant, Silpa, Billa, all the other 10 kids. And she named him Joseph, which means may he add. And just to make sure everyone got the message of what was happening, she raised her voice and she said, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, this is interesting. You know, Scripture is really important. Isn't it amazing that the Scripture doesn't say, and Rachel was fulfilled in her pursuit. Rachel suddenly held her promise. What does she do? The first thing she says is, I'm going to name this boy, may he add me another son. If you know anything about the Bible, you'll know names are really important. And just like Simeon, Reuben, Levi, Judah, Dan, uh, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, I think I can remember them all, Dinah, Joseph and eventually Benjamin, they all had meanings attached to their names. And this carried on all through Scripture. And we see Joseph a little bit later, if you know the story, he almost has an arrogance about him when he's talking to his brothers. Do you know who I am? I'm the big I am. And he's the youngest and his brothers are getting annoyed. And we see Joseph there and we think of him as arrogant. But actually, if you think about it, imagine growing up knowing that your name was, may I have another son? Maybe it was insecurity. Maybe Joseph was projecting a bit of psychology here because as soon as he was born, his mother forgot him and was in pursuit of another son. I've never seen this before. Rachel completely missed the moment. And we can look at Rachel and think, goodness me, Rachel, what are you doing? But actually, I think what happened with Rachel here is indicative of human nature as a whole. I think we all do this in certain ways. See, humans, we have this insatiable, innate appetite for more and better all of the time, totally missing the beauty provision and the miracles in the moment. What does this look like for us? Well, it might be that last week you got a brand new job and you've been pursuing this pay rise in this position for ages. And as soon as you get it, you take a moment to think, oh my goodness, that was fantastic. But then straight away, your eyes turn on to the next position. You're looking at the next title and the next pay packet. And you start imagining what you could do with that pay rise. Maybe you're jumping on a plane to Italy and you've saved up all year to go on a romantic getaway with your spouse to Italy. But someone comes in behind you, sits down and starts talking to their neighbour about their trip to Dubai. And instantly you're thinking, I want to go to Dubai. And the whole time you're on your way to Italy, you're Googling flights and deals and Groupon offers to get to Dubai. And then you're sat in the Colosseum and instead of taking in the Colosseum, you're looking down at your phone and thinking, goodness me, I want to visit that shopping mall in Dubai. And you miss the moment. Do you, do you know what I mean? And we had a little bit of therapy at the first 
service. And that's therapy for me, not for you. I often use a platform just to uh, present my problems. <laughs> but one of the issues I, I have is I'm a bit of a, an addict. I have an addictive personality. And one of the things I really struggle with doing when I get home is TikTok. Anyone else got a TikTok addiction? There you go, look around. These are the people who will be at the front of the queue in heaven because they're honest, okay? <laughs> TikTok. Now, I like doom scroll on TikTok. Uh, and glory, you'll know, it, it gives you algorithms. So it shows you things you like and it keeps feeding you and feeding you. And you look at the clock and it's 5pm and you look down, you look up again and it's 8. And my children, like Judah's growing a beard and I, I don't know what's happened like, in this time. <laughs> I've just lost so much time on TikTok. And, and one of my algorithm holes at the moment is a guy called Teddy Swims. Uh, has anyone heard of Teddy Swims, a vocalist? Most soulful voice you've ever heard. Looks like a thug, sings like an angel, okay? And I keep getting all these algorithms of, of Teddy Swims singing at conferences. And he recently did some busking in London. He's doing a tour. Uh, it's a sales pitch for Teddy Swims. He's doing a tour in London soon. I couldn't get a ticket that all sold out. But what's fascinating about all these gig pictures of Teddy Swims is the audience. And it looks something like this. And I'm guilty of this myself. I do it in church all the time. Don't know if you can see it on the main screen, but maybe on the side screens. You see, the difference in the last 20 years of concerts is where you watch a concert from, I don't know, the 80s. If something comes up, you know, Cindy Lauper comes up on TikTok and there's a huge concert and everyone's immersed in it. Today, you look at the... Con uh, the concert sort of videos and the pictures and everyone has got their phones out. Everyone is watching the concert through their screens, which is crazy because they spent £200 and they're doing exactly the same as what I'm doing on my settee. And I'm far more comfortable and don't need to use a portaloo. Crazy. But owning the moment, living for the moment means being fully present in that moment, allowing yourself to see and participate in what God is doing right now with contentment. You see, my theory is, and I know this, so I've done it myself. My theory is all these people taking videos of these concerts, they will never, ever watch them, ever. And if they do, the lighting's rubbish and the sound quality's rubbish. The reason they're doing this is to put it on social media. Why? To make themselves look better, to get more likes, more comments. I can't believe you got tickets there. And they totally miss the moment. And we trade in this more and better appetite for what's actually happening in the moment. And here's the key, it's contentment. It's something that is in very short supply today. And the whole advert sort of uh, production line lives on this contentment. If you get this Nivea product, you will look 20 years younger. It doesn't work, I've tried. If you get this watch, you'll be the envy of everybody. If you wear this top, everyone will fall at your feet. If you wear this perfume or aftershave, you will be like a Greek god. This is what it feeds into. Uh, we want to be more, we want to be better, we want to be greater than. But kingdom is all about contentment. Look at this from the Apostle Paul. You see, when we start comparing, and not just to other people, but even comparing to ourselves, we will be completely robbed of the moment. Completely robbed. And the problem is when you are robbed of a moment, many moments make a lifetime. And you'll end up living a life that is by default rather than by design. You've heard it time and time again, the axioms of people lying on their deathbed. They never said, I wish I'd worked more. Or I wish I got another promotion. 
Their, their regret is always about missing moments. Why? It's because they've lived a life of default rather than design. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in Philippi. It says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And you do not know how powerful that line is. How different your life would be if we could do, and my life, what Paul learnt here. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ or through Him who gives me strength. And this is a verse we love to shout about, especially as Pentecostals. When we're praying for that breakthrough, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We put it on coffee mugs and fridges and in the back of our car. And we pray over our boss getting fired. We use this verse all the time. But look at the context of the verse. It's not about gaining. It's about contentment. We're masters of taking things out of context. And the key word for me used twice in this verse that Paul uses is the word learned. I have learned to be content. What does that mean? It means our natural proclivity as humans is to not be content. To be in kingdom, we have to transform and conform to the kingdom of God because our natural desire is to just fall into the default of wanting more. It's what Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? We have to learn to do it. Do you know you won't just fall in to be conformed to the likeness of God? It takes persistence, discipline. It takes showing up even when you don't want to. It takes prayer. It takes pain and process. And this is how Paul learned to be content. It wasn't because he had the best house or the best job or the best car. It's because he learned to live in process. Paul's moments weren't dictated by what was happening around him or to him. It was happened by who was within him. And again, I said, at the 9.30 service. We pray all the time, God, give me opportunity like Paul. Make me more like Paul. Give me the wisdom of Paul. But we can't get the wisdom of Paul and the things of Paul without going through what Paul went through. And Paul was beaten. He was starving. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was stoned. He was dropped over a wall in a basket. And the problem is when we start praying things, God does answer. So when we, we pray, God, please make me more like Paul, and then we're getting stoned, uh, not in like with the smoking way, the actual stoned, okay? When we get stoned and beaten and persecuted, we start complaining. But God answers. But we try and put our will on His will. You see, what God gives, He wants us to partner with Him to grow. Zechariah 4.10 says this, Do not despise this day of small beginnings because I love to see the work begin. And going back to Rachel, what I love about Rachel, is straight away she tries to put her agenda on Joseph, okay? And she wants everyone in the room to know, I'm gonna call him Joseph because I want more children. And God answers Rachel's prayer in that he adds, but he added very differently. What Rachel doesn't realise in naming Joseph prophetically, may he add, God added wisdom and stature and character and goodness. Joseph became the second most powerful person in the known world because God added. But if you read Joseph's stories, he went through a heck of a lot of process. He was accused, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, but he held the course. And just... Maybe it's a danger of going down a little rabbit warren. Just as a side note, Rachel did get more. 
Rachel got Benjamin, but does anyone know what happened when Benjamin was born? She died. Now, I'm not saying if you ask for more for God, he's going to kill you, okay? I'm not saying that. But can you see the metaphor? She was so consumed with getting more, so focused on getting more, missed what was in her arms. Maybe she missed Joseph's first crawling, his first steps, getting out of nappies, losing her dummy, because she was so focused on getting more. And in that pursuit, she eventually died. She missed so much in missing the moment. You see, Rachel's given name Joseph. It seemed negative at the time, but God's ways are not our ways. So Isaiah 55, 89 says, His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. And sometimes when we put our own agenda on things, God will blow it apart and make it so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. You know that verse, Ephesians 3.20? May He do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to whose work? His work through us. It's not our work through us. When we submit our plans and purposes to God, He will always surpass what we can ask or imagine, but we need to give it to Him. So if we're talking about owning our moments, what does that mean in practice? Because it's all good and well to say we should own our moments and we should be conscious of them and we should make them obedient to Jesus. But what does that look like in practice? And we are a Pentecostal people, a Pentecostal church. If you don't know what a Pentecostal is, don't worry if you're in this church, you are one, okay? And I always describe it as being at a family wedding and you have like the prim and proper grandma and grandpa and you have the mum and dad who are just laid back and then there's one crazy uncle with a tie around his head dancing on a table. That is the Pentecostals, okay? That's us. But the thing that sets us apart as Pentecostals is we believe in the power of the Spirit today is operational, is working. We don't believe that the gifts or the Spirit stop working at the closing of Scripture. We believe He is present as a person here. John 16, 13 tells us that when, we, when the Spirit comes, He leads us and He guides us into all truth. See, the Spirit we believe in isn't like some ethereal ghostly force. He's a person. Galatians 5, Galatians 5.25 tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. Again, because it leads us into all truth, gives us knowledge and wisdom and power. And it's His work in us that we operate through the Spirit. Now, I think the problem with the Pentecostals is we think we have the monopoly on everything. But I do think we have some pitfalls, and I could say that as an out-and-out Pentecostal. And we can almost be arrogant because we're so besotted with the Spirit and we're operating it that we don't learn from anyone else. You know, we have the Church of England, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics. and There's all different streams and broad, very broadly speaking, we believe in the same stuff. Um, there's some nuances. But it was a few years ago that I was researching a guy called Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius of Loyola. And he was a priest who knocked about in the 15th century. If you've ever heard of the Jesuits, it was him who started the Jesuit order. And when talking about owning your moments, this guy was the master because he, he almost came up with a programme of prayer called the Prayer of Examine. Has anyone ever heard of that? Yeah, a couple of people, Prayer of Examine. And examine is where we get the word, it's a Latin word, we get the word examination. And it's, the word means to measure or to, to uh, delve into, to, to measure like with a ruler and to test, Okay. So this prayer of examine, he employed in his life to try and own his moments. And there was five steps. And I've butchered it a little, little bit. I'm quite simply minded. So I've made it into an acronym, okay? So an acronym is where the first letter of a word gives like a sentence. And the acronym I came up with is AWARE. 
aware. So if you take notes, write this down. So, so simple, but so profound if you can employ it in your day. When we're talking about owning our moments and living a life that is by design for God instead of living uh, a life of default where we just fall into it. If you take 15 or 20 minutes each evening, I promise you this will be really helpful. So A, we acknowledge God's present. And what I mean by that is God is present all the time. Before any light was turned on in this building, before any note was played, before Donna rocked up and began to sing, God was here. But we're not always aware of that. Do you know that? Especially when we've snuck off for a sneaky sin, okay? So we take a moment and we just stop and we lock out the distractions. Maybe we put our phone and our children and our spouse in another room for 15 minutes, okay? And we sit down and we acknowledge God's present presence. And then W, we walk back through our day intentionally. So we start from getting up, making coffee, and we, we catch things that we miss. Like I said, on the motorway, you completely blank out. But actually, when you stop and thinking about it later, it comes back. We walk back through our day. And then A again, we acknowledge the moments we were furthest from God. And that might look like shouting at your kids or chewing someone, else at the, uh, someone out at the office. Or maybe like, you know, nicking a rubber out of the school supplies. Whatever it was, we acknowledge the moments we were furthest from God. And then we commit them to prayer. Why do we do this? Because owning our moments isn't just about the positive things, it's also about the negative things as well. When we can learn from the positive stuff as well as the negative stuff, we learn twice as much. And it's in those moments when we acknowledge the moments we are furthest from God, we make sure the molehills of today don't become mountains tomorrow because there's power in confession. So we acknowledge God, we walk back through our day, we admit where we were furthest from God and then R, we recognise God's fingerprints throughout the day. And this has been fascinating for me because often when I take a moment and I stop and prayerfully walk back through my day, I see God's fingerprints all throughout it. I miss it in the moment, but when I stop and consider, I can see God there and I can see Him there and I can see Him there. And what that does, it lifts your spirit. It shows you that God is ever present. We don't just meander through our days, we see Him work in little moments. And the more we do that, the more we learn to see God in every moment as we walk in through the day. And then E, we expect to find hope in tomorrow. We expect to find hope in tomorrow. See, as humans, we have a natural bent towards the negative. We naturally expect negative things. And you'll know this in your own life when 15 people are giving you a compliment, but one person said something that could be remotely construed as negative, you go home and you ruminate on the negative thing and forget all the positive. So when we intentionally expect hope tomorrow, we're already starting a foot ahead. We're trying to culminate a glass half full mentality rather than just meandering through our morning, our afternoon and our evening. I wonder if the band could come back and Phil, if you come and make me sound holy with a minor pad on the piano, put a minor on. We all know the Holy Spirit can't come until there's keys. <laughs> but as I was walking through just these two verses, I really felt God spoke to me that there are so many moments in our life and in my life that I waste. Whether that's about worrying about something or being anxious about something, there's so many instances where God wants to work and I've shut him out 
because of my own agenda or my own worry, my own anxiety. He could come in and take over, but that's not how He works. He wants to partner with us to see His work grow. There's one verse I wanna leave you with as I, I finish from the Apostle Paul. He says this in Ephesians. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And I'll just plant that last word there for making the most out of every moment. I wonder if you stand with me, church, as we pray. Ah, thanks, mate. Yeah, Lord Jesus, I just pray. So we're standing here on this church in Gladstone Road in Northampton that, Lord, many Josephs have been birthed. Many promises have been held. And I pray, Lord, that we do not despise the day of small beginnings. And we know You rejoice in seeing the work begin. Help us nurture and grow the gifting that You've put in our lives. Help us nurture and grow the gift of hospitality and prophecy and generosity, Lord Jesus. And help us, Lord, not have the mentality of Rachel where we take for granted what You've given us, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray for every person in here who is in process, who is just feeling the pinch and feeling the hurt of walking through what is perceived of unanswered prayer, Lord. But I pray that in those moments that your absence wouldn't be equated to silence. Your silence, sorry, wouldn't be equated to absence. That Lord, even though you may not be speaking audibly, Lord, that you give us a peace and an understanding that you are at work that we would know and feel Your presence by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, not to take for granted the formation that happens in process, Lord. Bless us, Lord, and keep us. And Lord, we pray right now that You would have Your way in our lives. Our agendas would be laid down. Our preferences would be forgotten, Lord, as we live for the principles of the Kingdom. We pray this in Your Name. Amen. Amen.